welcome to Central Study Hour here at Sacramento Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're so happy that you have joined us today, whether you're watching locally or around the world. We're so happy that you've tuned in with us. to be called the children of God. If you have a special request, visit us at our website at saccentral.org. Click on the contact us link. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and don't forget the title of your hymn, and we'll be so happy to sing with you on an upcoming Sabbath. Our next song, as we move through the topical index, is Under the Priesthood. And our new song will be 179, The Wonders of Redeeming Love. And we'll be singing verses 1, 2, and 3. Thank you. 
favorite book of mine, Desire of Ages. The mystery of redeeming love is the theme into which the angels desire to look. And for the redeemed and the unfallen, it will be their science and song, the cross will be their science and song. We'll never fully understand that love, but something that the angels desire to look, that's, that's a very special moment in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sabbath, a time to rest, a time to get, to get together and worship and to be in fellowship with one another. And we invite your Holy Spirit to be with us because if the Holy Spirit's not here, it's all in vain. And I pray that you will bless Pastor Chris as he brings to us the Sabbath school lesson. Help us to hear your still small voice speaking to each of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Our Sabbath school lesson this morning will be brought to us by our senior pastor, Pastor Chris, here at Sacramento Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. Thank you. <laughs> good morning, and uh, happy Sabbath to you. It's good to see you, and uh, what a uh, delightful day it is. What a blessing to be in God's house on the Sabbath. Amen. Amen. And uh, look, I trust you've got your lessons with you, and those that are joining us, we're glad that you're joining us as well. You want to make sure that you're calling in for our free offer uh, this morning, and it's offer number C. Uh, that's not a number, obviously, but it begins with C, 21520. Uh, that's for the free offer. Let us know if you want the DVD or CD version. You want to call 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at saccentral.org. And uh, let us know how you're enjoying the programs. And for our congregation here, uh, feel free to um, send in any questions you might have pertaining to this particular week's lesson or any week's lesson, and uh, we'll try to get that involved and uh, see if we can't answer that uh, from time to time. So thanks for, uh, for uh, doing that. Uh, we're in the book of Luke. Uh, we're continuing on in our journey, and it's lesson number seven this morning. Lesson number seven, the Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and prayer. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and prayer. And uh, let's read our scripture text here. It is Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. And uh, we can read that. It says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. What a wonderful promise that is. We'll, uh, we'll look at that a little bit closer as we, as we go through our lesson. Sometime uh, back, uh, the Associated Press carried this dispatch. It was from Glasgow, Kentucky, and it said, Leslie Puckett, uh, poor Leslie, after struggling to start his car, lifted the hood and discovered someone had stolen the engine. How unfortunate. You can't go very far in your car without an engine, without a motor. And uh, you can't go very far and you can't expect to live an animated, joyful, courageous, Christ-reflecting life without the Holy Spirit 
and without prayer. And that's what the lesson is focusing on here uh, today. Jesus' uh, dependence upon the Holy Spirit and his teaching regarding the Holy Spirit and Jesus' prayer life. And of course, uh, the lessons that we can learn uh, from, uh, from Jesus' experience in life. Out of the Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke spends more time talking about the connection of the ministry of Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew refers to the Holy Spirit 12 times, uh, Mark refers to the Holy Spirit six times, and Luke mentions the Holy Spirit 17 times. But Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, and he mentions the Holy Spirit 57 times in the book of Acts. Can you see what the driving power and force was in the early church and what the driving power must be in the church today? Surely, yeah. Um, as the author of the lesson notes, he, sees, he says, Luke sees an operational link between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He also sees the importance of prayer uh, in Jesus' life and ministry, highlighting the need for all of us to leave a, live a life dedicated uh, and consecrated uh, prayer. If Jesus, the spotless Son of God, saw the need to pray, how much more do you and I, fallen humanity? So let's go into our lesson here. We're going to launch right into Sunday's lesson, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's without a doubt that Luke viewed the emergence of Christianity from the conception of Jesus to his ascension uh, to the rise of the early church as an absolute marvel that was initiated and steered by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what was the role of the Holy Spirit in Christ's coming as a man? If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be over in Luke. Turn with me over there to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be in Luke 1 and Luke 2 initially. What was the role of the Holy Spirit in Christ's coming as a man? And that's where we begin our study here today. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, talking about the, uh, the conception of Jesus. Notice what it says, And the angel answered and said to her, that is Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. What was the Holy Spirit's role in the birth of Jesus? He brought about the conception of the Son of God, didn't he? Yeah, the word uh, where it says uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary uh, and uh, the power of the highest uh, will overshadow you. That's a little poetry there. It's, uh, it's synonymous, a synonymous phrase. Um, for the Holy Spirit to come upon a person is for a Holy Spirit to fill a person. Uh, we're, we're told in the book of Judges chapter 6 with reference to Gideon that the Holy Spirit came upon him and he blew the trumpet and, uh, and led and called individuals out to join him to go to uh, battle. And uh, we're told that King Saul, the Holy Spirit came upon him and he was filled with the Spirit. We don't know exactly how all this took place. It was a divine miracle and uh, it was uh, absolute marvel. Uh, but uh, the Holy Spirit was int uh, intimately, intricately connected to the birth of Jesus, his entrance into the world. Now look at verse 41, same chapter. Let's take a look. Verse 41, it says, And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then jump over with me to chapter 2, verse 25, and we'll look at verses, uh, uh, verses 25 and on. 
This is referring to Simeon, who was a priest. It says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was what? Upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the, Lord, the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to, to, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. I like to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people is real. So what was the role of the Holy Spirit in the coming of Christ as a man? Number one, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We read that in Luke chapter 1 verse 35. Uh, also, in Luke chapter 1 verse 41, the Holy Spirit was confirmed or the Holy Spirit confirmed Mary's divine pregnancy through Elizabeth, you see. Elizabeth didn't know about what had taken place up to that time until the Holy Spirit gave her inspiration and she declared who the baby was in Mary's womb. And so the Holy Spirit came upon her. So the Holy Spirit confirmed Mary's divine pregnancy. And then thirdly, in reading about Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, the Holy Spirit connected connected the baby Jesus to the church through an elderly priest named Simeon. And so the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus as coming as a man is that he, he was, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, confirmed, the Holy Spirit confirmed Mary's divine pregnancy, and then the Holy Spirit connected Jesus to the church. It's, that's a very important point. Uh, God doesn't do much without connection, without, uh, it doesn't do much in history without uh, the involvement of his church on earth. And even Jesus was connected to the church of his day. Although Jesus came into the world and was seeking to reach out to Israel, and uh, Jesus was in reality building and establishing a new church, but still the Holy Spirit connected Jesus to the church. Nothing is done in a vacuum in a Christian's life, amen? God's always seeking to connect people to his people, and that's what he always does, and he did it with Jesus. So let's ask the question, how else was the Holy Spirit tied into the ministry of Jesus? We're going to look at several verses, so we're, and we're in Luke, so let's look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. Luke 3 and verse 16, John answered saying, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. Yeah, so John the Baptist predicted Jesus would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Look at verse 21 and verse 22. Now, when the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, the heaven was, op uh, was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. And so the Holy Spirit affirmed the Messiahship of Jesus at his baptism. This is all very, very good, isn't it? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, that's right. So Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where Jesus, before he entered in upon his ministry, could, um, could enter into some quality communion time 
with his Father. The closeness of Jesus and the Spirit at this time uh, teaches two very important lessons. Number one, that the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is connected by an eternal tie, an eternal tie, especially as it relates to the defeat of Satan and to the plan of salvation. So that's the first lesson we learn from this, uh, this connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And secondly, we can only be victorious if we know, if we obey, and if we practice the Word of God that is inspired by what or whom? By the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus was dealing with temptations. And what did He say? It is written. Yeah, it is written. He knew the Word. He obeyed the Word. He practiced the Word. And that Word was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's what gave Jesus victory, you see. So whether we are hungry, as Jesus was, or and poor, whether we're surrounded by the allurements of the world, these are the temptations that came to Jesus, or testing the veracity of God's promises, uh, we can be victorious if we know and trust and obey the Word of God as led by the, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, we're still looking at some verses, uh, the connection and relationship between Jesus' ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, 14. Notice what it says. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went out throughout all the surrounding regions. And so Jesus was filled with the Spirit at the beginning of his ministry, and it's the Holy Spirit that guided and led Jesus' life. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter. Jesus is standing before the, he's in the synagogue, standing before the people of some of the people of Nazareth there. And he's reading from Isaiah, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Jesus later uh, declared as he sat down that today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And uh, so Jesus said, Hey, the Spirit of God is upon me, and the Spirit of God is upon me, anointing me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." And so, uh, the Holy Spirit, in these words uh, of Isaiah, uh, Jesus is declaring that that His work was empowered, His ministry was empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 11, we're looking at some more here. Luke chapter 11. And verse 13, and we're going to come here a little bit later on. It says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? So Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to anyone who would ask for Him. Now someone has John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. All right, we just need to see your hand, if you don't mind. Right over here. Oh, right over here. Stacy, thank you so much. All right. John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. We're going to come to you in just a moment. We're going to look at Luke chapter 12, verse 10, before we get to John 16. And although I know we're looking at verses in Luke, we're going to skip over to John because uh, he has something very important and very interesting to say over there. Uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 10. Notice again uh, the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And if anyone, Jesus said, who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. That's right. It will not be forgiven. So Jesus warns us not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? 
simply rejecting the, the gentle pleadings and prods of the Holy Spirit, building up a brick wall so that you can't hear the work or hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's like cutting the, 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 the telephone wire or hitting mute on your cell phone. You can't hear the Holy Spirit anymore speaking. And so Jesus warned us against uh, committing the unpardonable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay, John chapter 16, verses five through seven. Thanks, Stacy. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come again unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. All right, excellent. Thank you for that. So Jesus was promising his disciples that his abiding presence would be with his followers through what agency? Through the third, third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, there is a question that uh, I think, Richard, you have the question? And we're going to come to you in just a moment right here. Um, you have a question related to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but I just want to touch on this very important point here in John chapter 16, what Stacy read. Jesus promised, he actually said it would be expedient that he would go away, that the Holy Spirit would come. Why did Jesus say that? Because if you were a disciple of Jesus at that time, you wouldn't be saying no. You wouldn't be saying, yes, it's expedient, you need to go. You'd be saying no. Um, why do you think Jesus said it would be expedient? It would be expedient because... Jesus was a man, and he could only be at one place at one time. And, uh, and, and leaving, there would be a, a vacuum and a need for the presence of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, you see. And, um, and, and the disciples of Jesus and you and I, would it be able to experience the presence of Jesus in a more powerful way because the Holy Spirit would always be able to be with us? So this is a powerful thing that Jesus is saying here. So the other thing that I just wanted to highlight is that Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit not as a force or of some power, but as one with God. He refers to him as a he, not as an it, but as a he. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father. If you continue to read one with Jesus, one with the Father, if you continue to read John chapter 16, you'll notice in there uh, over and over again, uh, the things that the Holy Spirit does, leading, uh, guiding people into all truth, uh, comforting them, leading them, steering their lives. This is something a person does. This is something the Holy Spirit does, you see. And it's a great mystery. I don't profess to suggest that we know exactly what the Holy Spirit looks like, but uh, we can still say without a shadow of a doubt that He is the third person of the Godhead, you see. And through that uh, agency, Jesus promises to be with us. And that's a wonderful promise, Amen. Surely. Richard, you had a quick question. What practical ways can we open ourselves up to the leading and infilling of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Okay, so uh, that's a very good question, isn't it? We're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in connection to the ministry of Jesus. What about personally? Uh, how, about, uh, how about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And uh, how we can clear up the channel, so to speak, to, uh, to hear the Holy Spirit's voice speaking to us. What would you say? What would you say? What are some practical ways we can actually hear the Holy Spirit and uh, open ourselves up to the leading and the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Okay, someone said turn off the TV. Okay, fair enough. All right, less TV, more Bible. How's that? Yeah, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Um, and if we come to the Bible, we're going to hear the voice of God, the voice of the Holy Spirit doing what? Speaking to us, that small, still voice. That's right. 
So opening the Bible, that's exactly right, a good thing to do. Not only just opening the Bible, but being careful that we follow and obey it. If we see something in the Word of God that God's asking us to do and we turn a deaf ear, if we turn our back on it, we, we, we push back on it, uh, we're putting ourselves in a position of danger because the more we do that, the less we will be able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit uh, speaking to our hearts. And it's kind of like building that brick wall. You build that brick wall to here, you can still talk to the person on the other side. You keep building that brick wall all the way to the ceiling, and that's a mighty tall brick wall, but you build it all the way to the, to the ceiling, are you going to be able to hear the person on the other side? No. And so every time we say no to the Holy Spirit, to the Word of God, we actually are shutting out uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit and His prodding and His calling in our lives, you see. Um, yes, yeah, there are some distractions too, aren't there? Uh, you know, we, we, could, we could suggest, and listen, this is important to remember, that the voice of the Holy Spirit is soft and it's gentle. The Holy Spirit's voice isn't often loud and obtrusive. The Holy Spirit's voice is soft. And so if we are allowing a lot of noise into our minds, then it blocks out the voice of the Holy Spirit. So spending time in prayer is an important thing. Just uh, stepping back, Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. His ministry, and we'll talk about this, his ministry was saturated in prayer. He came to save the world, but he withdrew to spend quality time with God in prayer. And so that's very, very important. Removing obstacles in our lives. Some of us have attitude issues. Some of us have pride issues. Some of us have people in our lives that are not doing us any good. And I'm not suggesting we should sever relationships or friendships, but we maybe need to spend a little less time with them and more time with Jesus. Uh, I'm just, just, just giving you some ideas here. Lifestyles, what we listen to, what we watch, what we read, are we doing, are those things preventing the Holy Spirit from speaking to us? And so these are some practical things that we can, that we can do uh, to, uh, to open ourselves up to the working and leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And there are no doubt many more. All right, let's go over to Monday's lesson. Let's talk about now the prayer life of Jesus. The prayer life of Jesus. You know, Jesus was the, not only the Son of Man, but he was the Son of God. And uh, here Jesus is praying. Jesus was often found in prayer. Prayer brings with it the idea of dependency, doesn't it? Dependency upon the Almighty God. Always before some big decision or experience, Jesus spent some quality time in prayer. And Luke shares with us some of those very important moments. And I want to go through those with you. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll turn there. Let's take a look. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, we were talking about Jesus' baptism earlier, and I want you to notice, Luke is the only one who says this about Jesus when he came up out of the water at his baptism. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, it says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, prayed while he prayed, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, during his baptism, was what? Praying. He was praying. This is amazing. Jesus was praying during his baptism. We're told in Desire of Ages, page 111, that Jesus was about to enter in on the conflict of his life. And so his life was going to be saturated in prayer. He was praying that people would receive uh, his, who he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. He was praying that uh, uh, his, the followers that he would, uh, would, would bring to himself would have minds and hearts that were open to his ministry and to his mission and not be blocked and closed like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So Jesus, at his baptism, prayed. 
Look over at Luke chapter 6 now. Luke chapter 6 and verses 12 and 13. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out, talking of Jesus, out to the mountain to pray. That's right. And he continued all night in prayer to God. I mean, that, that always amazes me that Jesus spent all night in prayer. You probably had the same experience that I've had. You're on your knees, you're praying, and you're talking to the Lord, and before you know it, you don't know what happened. Lights went out, you're on, the, you're on your knees, and it's one o'clock in the morning. And you've been on your knees all that time, but you haven't been praying. You've been sleeping. It's not, it may have happened to you. I hope I'm not the only one. You were talking to the Lord and you were so tired. Um, in any case, I, I think it happened uh, when we were um, as students uh, working uh, in uh, working, uh, going door to door as coal porters, literature evangelists. And a friend of mine were canvassing in um, coal portering in Arkansas over the winter break. And uh, we, uh, before we went to bed, we were praying, and uh, I prayed and went into uh, my sleeping bag, and my friend, when I woke up in the morning, was still kneeling down. He'd fallen asleep and uh, was in that position, I guess, praying on and off and sleeping on and off. But Jesus prayed all night, and it probably wouldn't do us any harm to pray a little extra longer than we normally do when some very important decisions are about to be made or about to experience something new in our lives. Jesus, before he chose the 12 disciples, did I read, did I read the uh, verse 13? And when, he was, and when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. So Jesus spent all night in prayer before he chose his 12 disciples, his, uh, these individuals who would be apostles, who would be called to the, and the office second only to that of Jesus himself. So this was a very, very important decision Jesus was making. If uh, you're planning to get married, you probably ought to spend three or four times extra uh, time in prayer before you uh, make that decision. Uh, very important decisions being made. The college you're gonna go off to, a new job that you're gonna be uh, employed at, spending time, quality time with God. As pastors here, we think and we pray, and our elders think and pray before another elder is chosen or a deacon. And uh, it's very important that we're praying uh, through these big decisions. Luke chapter nine, verse 18. Go over with me there. Another big decision or another important event. Luke chapter nine, verse 18. And it happened as he was also alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowd say that I am? Jesus spent quality time in prayer here, prayed that his disciples would completely identify with him as a person and with his mission as the son of God, as Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Messiah. So Jesus, before coming to them and asking them, who do you say that I am? Prayed for them. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus prays for us? Even though he's not here anymore, but up there in the heavenly sanctuary, he still prays for us. Jesus prays for each one of us that we might identify completely with his person and his mission and who he is and what he's doing in the heavenly sanctuary now. Uh, that's what he wants for us. And then uh, let's go over to Luke 9, 28 and 29, another instance. Now it came to pass after about eight days, after these sayings, that he took Peter, John, and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. You notice Jesus spent oftentimes in prayer on mountains. He went alone, and he went high. And there's always something neat about going up high. You get a new perspective on things. Going alone, spending time with God. There he was. He took Peter, James, and John, 
uh, up to the mountain to pray, and as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. So Jesus prayed for his disciples and prayed before his transfiguration uh, when he received the second endorsement of his fa- of, from his father of his sonship. You remember the voice said, you are my beloved son, I'm pleased with you. This was the second endorsement. So Jesus prayed before the transfiguration. Now someone has Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Who's got that? Luke chapter 23, verse 46. We're gonna come to you in just a moment, brother. Uh, Let's go over to Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to begin with. Luke 22, verse 39. And it says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and what did he do? He prayed. And what did he pray? Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me nevertheless. Not my will but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. And perhaps this was the most important prayer of Jesus' life. It was there that Jesus made the ultimate surrender to go through with the plan to go to Calvary, to go to the cross. There are three important principles that we can learn from this particular prayer. The superiority of God's will. Jesus surrendered to it. God's will was superior. Jesus surrendered to it. That's number one. Number two, the commitment to follow through on God's will, even at the risk of giving up one's own life. And then thirdly, the strength to be victorious toward accomplishing God's will and purpose. Some powerful lessons we can learn just from that important prayer of Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Okay. So Jesus prayed, committing his life into the hands of God. And where was Jesus at this time? He was on the cross. He was on Calvary. That's exactly right. And he committed his life into the hands of God. Here Jesus gives us the ultimate purpose of prayer. The ultimate purpose of prayer. It is the vehicle by which we remain surrendered to God's purposes and his plans for our lives. So when we pray, we are to pray God's will be done. We are to pray and commit our lives into God's hands. And can you trust your life in God's hands? Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Whatever you might be going through, and I don't mean to diminish that, but you can trust God through it. He cares for you. He loves you. Uh, He'll guide you. He'll give you wisdom. He'll do what needs to be done to help you through that. He may not remove that situation, but he'll help you through it. There's no doubt about that. As we pray, we're to surrender our all to Jesus. So what do the examples from Jesus' prayer life tell us about our own prayer life? Uh, When I was reviewing this lesson, I mean, it spoke volumes to me. It told me I need to pray more. I need to pray more. It challenged my, my, my commitment to the relationship that I want with God. Am I connected to the Father like I, I ought to really be? What, uh, what do these examples from Jesus' prayer tell us about our own prayer life? I want to read to you here a statement found in Desire of Ages, page 362 and 363. And um, it's talking about 
prayer. In a life wholly devoted to the good of others, and this is talking about Jesus, the Savior found it necessary to withdraw from the thoroughfares of travel and from the throng that followed him day after day. He must turn aside from a life of ceaseless activity and contact with human needs to seek retirement and unbroken communion with the Father. As one with us, a sharer in our needs and our weaknesses, he was wholly dependent upon God, and in the secret place of prayer, he sought divine strength that he might go forth braced for duty and trial. In a world of sin, Jesus endured struggles and torture of soul. In communion with God, he could unburden the sorrows that were crushing him. Here he found comfort and he found joy. And then she concludes by saying, in Christ, the cry of humanity reached the father of infinite pity. As a man, he supplicated the throne of God till his humanity was charged with a heavenly current that should connect humanity with divinity. Through continual communion, he received life from God that he might impart life to the world. His experience is to be ours. Man, isn't that beautiful? If Jesus, the Son of God, saw, saw his dependence and need of continual communion with the Father, how much more do you and I need to stay connected to, to the Father? Jesus was certainly the Son of God. He was the Son of Man. He experienced temptations. He experienced the weakness of humanity. He didn't sin, but he understood what it means to be human, and he knew that he needed to depend upon the strength of his Father, and so he spent quality time in prayer. And uh, so the admonition uh, here is, as Jesus' life was a life of continual communion with God through prayer, so our lives should be also. And that doesn't mean we should be walking around on our knees in that, in that form of prayer the entire day. Yes, there are, there are moments where we need to go into that quiet place, that quiet room, go to a mountainside, buy a, 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 a rippling stream, someplace quiet where we had to commune with God alone. But we had to take that communion all throughout the day, amen, to spend quality time talking to God. This leads us to Tuesday's lesson. Because when Jesus uh, was praying, the disciples had just returned from somewhere. We're not exactly sure. They heard Jesus praying. They were so impressed with the prayer of Jesus. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. So we're going to go over to Luke chapter 11. We're on Tuesday's lesson. Luke chapter 11. They wanted to learn how to pray. And it's a good question to ask. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach me how to pray. I was challenged by the pastor who baptized me. Um, he said, you know, you need to spend time with God each morning and spend time with him in the, in the Bible and time in prayer. And um, as one who wasn't accustomed to daily praying, uh, it was a challenge to begin with because it felt like my prayers were just kind of bouncing off the ceiling. I was talking to someone unseen, unknown. But as I read his word and as I kept on praying and read his word and kept on praying and I studied and I was reading the gospels and I was reading along with that the Desire of Ages and if you haven't read the book Desire of Ages, man, you got to read that book. It's a powerful book on the life of Jesus. As I got better acquainted with Jesus, it became easier to pray to a person, to someone who was actually hearing me, who cared for me, who loved me, who could talk, uh, who could talk to me and I could talk to him. I said, Lord, teach me to pray and he continues to teach us all, doesn't he, how to pray. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Let's read that in Luke chapter 11, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. 
Luke chapter 11, 1 through 4. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And so he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So how does this model prayer teach us to pray? What elements are in this prayer that we should incorporate in ours? I want to take us point by point here. First of all, Jesus prays to whom? Father, our Father who art in heaven. That's right, Father. This was Jesus' favorite reference to God. As a matter of fact, it's mentioned 170 times in the four Gospels. Father, Jesus' reference to the, his Father. This is a recognition, and this is important for us to remember when we're praying, to recognize, this is one step or one thought, to recognize that God exists, that he is alive, and that he is a personal God, not a philosophical idea or a pantheistic notion, the idea that God is somehow nebulous in, in all things and uh, in and around all things. No, God's personal. He's real, who cares for his children. So when we pray, we're to recognize that he is personal, that he exists, that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours because our Father doesn't live here on earth. He lives where? In heaven. His ways are different than our ways. And also, in praying this way, we recognize that we are all children of the same family. And that's an important concept as too. When we're praying to our Father in heaven, we're acknowledging that we are children of the same Father, you see. And then Jesus said, hallowed be your name. Each prayer of ours should recognize that God is first and foremost holy. He is holy. He is awesome. He is big. He is mighty, almighty. He is first and foremost holy. And then he is everything else. And then he is everything else. This is not encouragement that we should try and figure out the exact name of God, by the way, and try to refer to him by that. For after all, if we did know God's name, we would seldom use it when referring to the majesty of heaven, wouldn't you? No one goes around talking to the Queen of England. Hey, Elizabeth, hey, let's, uh, let's chat a little, little bit. They call her her majesty. And no one calls the President of the United States by his first name, just, hey, Barack, let's hang out. It is Mr. President. Whoever sits in that seat, it's Mr. President. You show respect. So Jesus is not suggesting here we should try to figure out the exact name of God. That would be an impossibility in the first place and then call him by it. It's really, he's really saying that we, sh we are called to hallow his name by representing his character in our words and in our deeds. That's how we hallow God's name. That's how we sanctify God's name, by representing him in our lives. You remember Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And God said, I will pass before you and I will declare my name. And so everyone sits up and listens. Okay, God is going to pass before Moses. Let's listen to the name of God. And what did God declare? His name was what? Merciful and gracious long-suffering, et cetera, et cetera. His name is his character. His name is who he is. And we are called to hallow 
his name by representing him in word and in deed. To say that we follow him and not obey him is to basically tarnish that name. You know, in the Ten Commandments, the Third Commandment, it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. There are folk who take the name of the Lord in vain by professing they're Christians but living as non-Christians, not expressing faith in God, trusting in Him. They're living profligate lives, all the while declaring they're Christians. We can tarnish that name by misrepresenting that name. So he said, hallowed be your name. Another area in which we ought to be praying, and Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he said, your kingdom what? Your kingdom come, that's right. In other words, the kingdom come, there's a recognition that, that there's going to come a time that Jesus will establish his kingdom here on earth. First of all, he's going to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men, and you can refer to Luke chapter 17, verse 21. Uh, right now, we're living in the kingdom of his grace. We're living in the kingdom of his grace. And uh, it's also a recognition that there will be an end to the kingdoms of the world when God sets up his eternal kingdom. And you can go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 for reference there. Jesus said, thy kingdom come. A recognition, a recognition that we must first enter, enter, enter into the kingdom of grace before we think to enter into the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of glory is established when Jesus comes back. We're told in Matthew and in Luke that when Jesus comes back, he's going to sit on the throne of his glory. But Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that we are to come boldly to his throne of grace. We're living under the kingdom of grace right now, but one day the kingdom of glory will be established. After a thousand years, we will, kingdom will come uh, right here on planet earth. And then he said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray, we are to recognize the reality that just as angels in heaven obey God and delight to do his will, we, by God's grace, can do God's will also. It must begin with you and me. And after the millennium, after the thousand years that we read about in Revelation chapter 20, heaven will come to earth. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. So when we, and we're not finished with the Lord's Prayer yet, we're going to go over to Wednesday's lesson, but right here, we have to recognize this is no ordinary prayer, amen? This isn't just a run out the door kind of flippant, hey Lord, morning, and out we go. It's not, it's not that type of prayer. This is not the type of, this, is, this type of praying involves more than repetitious or rote prayers. This type of praying is more than shallow, frothy type prayers. This type of praying involves the heart and engages the mind. It's a call to an ongoing, intimate, saving relationship with Jesus Christ, with the God of heaven and the universe, you see. So Jesus is teaching us that prayer is to be our lives. And it's really a, a call for dependence upon God, isn't it? Let's go over to Wednesday's lesson. Let's continue the model prayer, part two. The model prayer, part two. Jesus said, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. He's teaching us how to pray. We're to recognize our absolute dependency on the Father's benevolence to provide for our basic necessities daily. Now, if he cares for the sparrow, do you think he'll care for you? Certainly. Praying this prayer doesn't in any way, though, diminish honest, hard work. It also acknowledges that our ability to provide comes from God, you see. God will take care of us if we place our faith and confidence in Him. Give us this day our daily bread. And then He said, forgive us our sins. Again, we're learning how to pray here. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. We're to recognize in our prayers our humanity. 
We're to recognize our need of God's grace and our rec- the recognition of our need of compassion and forgiveness toward others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who've sinned against or trespassed against us, you see. Forgiving others gives evidence that we have received the forgiveness of God in our hearts. Now, sometimes some folk might take advantage of your kindness toward them. Therefore, we need to pray for more grace. We need to pray for more grace. And then Jesus closed and said, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver us. This, again, he's teaching us to pray. In each of our prayers, we're to give recognition of our need of good sense to not put ourselves in the way of temptation, amen? And secondly, the need of power to overcome temptation that finds us. You don't need to go looking for temptation. Temptation's gonna come looking for you. There's a devil, there's his imps, there's your, 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 your carnal nature. All of these things draw us to, uh, to sin, you see. We don't have to succumb, however. We need to recognize a couple of things here, first of all. Temptation is not sin, amen? If you're tempted, it doesn't mean you're sinning. It means you're being tempted. It is not the product. Temptation is not the product. It is the process used to lead us to the product, which is sin. And then, uh, and then we need to remember that God, so first of all, succumbing to, to temptation is not an option for the Christian. We don't need to, amen? We don't have to by God's grace. The second thing is God is not the author of temptation. This is what this prayer teaches us. God is not the author of temptation. He may allow it to come, but he does not, uh, he's not the author of it, and he doesn't allure us to sin at any particular time. So this is how Jesus teaches us to pray. He's teaching us to depend upon him. He's teaching us to lean upon him. He's teaching us to, to look to him as our father, the one who cares for us, the one who'll guide our lives, the one who'll give us victory, the one who'll care for us. God is good, isn't he? He really is. All right, so here we are. We're going to be talking here. We're going to jump over to Thursday's lesson. More lessons on prayer. I want to ask this question here. How willing is God, how willing is God to provide for our needs? Yeah, he's very willing, right? Uh, Luke chapter 11, who's got that? Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. We're going to come to you in just a moment, Robert. You need to remember that God will re- answer our requests according to his will. There's no doubt about that. Okay, Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. Thanks, Robert. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that it knocketh, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? We serve a very benevolent God, don't we? Thank you very much. Very benevolent God. There's no doubt about it. He'll grant our requests according to his will, 1 John 5, 14. He'll provide for our needs when we put him first, Matthew 6, 33. He'll give us the desires of our heart if we delight in him, Psalm 37, verse 4. He'll give us our greatest need, and the greatest need we have is for the Holy Spirit, you see. If we but ask, more than anything else, God wants us to have the Holy Spirit. God, at the drop of a hat, click of his fingers, could provide for our financial needs, could take care of the problems that we have in a heartbeat. But the greatest want that we have, the greatest need he wants to fulfill for us is the need 
of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need and we have to have and we can have the Holy Spirit. This is the day of the latter rain. This is the day where we ought to be praying for the seasons of refreshing. Let's pray for rain, amen? Let's pray for rain. Let's pray for more of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said if you ask, it will be, or he will be given to you. The Holy Spirit coming into the life will empower and help and shape our lives, you see. We're in Thursday's lesson. In Thursday's lesson, more lessons on prayer. By teaching an example, Jesus expected his followers, and we've been studying this, he expected his followers to engage in a life of prayer. Through prayer, they could be, number one, experience the nearness of God. Number two, be actively engaged in mission. And number three, be victorious in their struggle against sin, against self, and against the world. So what kind of prayer life should we lead? What type of prayer life should we have? Luke provides some important principles and elements of prayer. We're not going to look at all the verses, but I'm going to give you some references here. Uh, Jesus encourages us in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, to pray for our enemies, to pray for our enemies. We, can, we should be praying for those that perhaps we don't like. God will change our hearts, but we're commanded to pray for our enemies. And then we're encouraged in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, to pray for God's, sorry, Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Luke 10, verse 2, we're to pray for God's worldwide work and be a participant in bringing in the sheaves, you see. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, we're to pray for spiritual courage, and then in Luke chapter 10, verse 4, uh, Luke chapter 18, rather, verse 10 through 14, I want to take you over there real quick. I want to read that. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. It's a story that Jesus told. He said, two men went on the, up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners and unjust adulterers and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat on his chest saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This teaches us that when we pray, we're to pray with confession and with humility. In, Patri in Prophets and Kings, page 590, uh, we're told that meekness and lowliness are the conditions of success and victory. A crown of glory awaits those who bow at the foot of the cross. Isn't that beautiful? And then over in Luke chapter 21, verse 36, Jesus encourages us to pray always, pray without ceasing. And then Luke 22, verses 40 and 46, we're to pray not to be defeated by temptation. So these are some of the things that Jesus has given us, principles that would guide our prayer life. Then we have the model prayer. Jesus gave us the model prayer. We read that in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And then, thirdly, there are certain qualities that should characterize our prayer life. Next to the Lord's Prayer, our prayer life should be at its core, the attitude that says, not my will, but your will be done. When that happens, the ingredients of a meaningful prayer life follow. Thanksgiving, continual dependence upon God, persistence, penitence, humility, faith, and the list goes on. Jump back with me to Luke chapter 11, our last verse verses 5 through 8, Jesus said, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me in his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer within and say, do not trouble me, the door is now shut, my children are with me in bed and I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, 
he will rise and give him as many as he needs. We are to be persistent in our prayer life. If God knows and cares, then why do I have to persevere in prayer? Does persevering change God's heart? No, but it does change ours. Someone said prayer is heaven's means to educate our desires. And so as we persevere in prayer, God changes our hearts and minds, gets us into line with his will and uh, his plans for us. Well, I wanted to read a statement from Thoughts from the Man of Blessing, but I'm just going to tell you where to go to read it. It's on page 85, Thoughts from the Man of Blessing, page 85, and it's a powerful little couple of paragraphs talking about the uh, benefits and the, uh, the joys of prayer and praying to our Father. Look, the life of a Christian is, was born, the life of a Christian is born and is nourished by the Holy Spirit, and is in, it is imperative that this life be sustained through ongoing prayer, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise, prayers of intercession and dependence of God. And this life is sustained also through the study of God's holy word. And so the question for us here today is, won't we give more time to prayer, be more earnest about receiving the Holy Spirit and open God's word on a more regular basis. Is that your prayer? Is that your desire today? That's my desire as well. Thank you for those, to those that have been joining us. I'm glad that you have. Uh, don't forget to call in for your free offer. It's offer C21520 and call in at 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at saccentral.org. We're glad you joined us. Keep on looking up, keep on praying, keep on studying God's word, keep asking for the Holy Spirit. What do you say? Amen.